I want you all uh, to imagine with me, if you will, uh, in some ways it's a perfect week for this, imagine if Pastor Craig were to move to a town, let's say 100 miles away or so, in the effort of planting uh, a Reformed Baptist church. He decides that he's going to uh, seek to spread the gospel in a new area. And I imagine the qualifications of such a town where he would have to live, it would have to be a place that um, is in need um, of a biblically sound church. Uh, that's number one. And probably number two, it would have to have a La Rosa's in the nearby area, maybe within 20 square miles or so. So if those two bullet points uh, were hit, Pastor Craig is uh, taking Sherry and they are, they're out of here. Um, and so perhaps and prayerfully our church would still uh, desire and live faithfully. Uh, but what would Pastor Craig be to us? He would be in a sense our spiritual uh, in terms of the work of the gospel, he'd be like our father or grandfather. Uh, he'd be the guy that, through the power of the Holy Spirit, started um, Grace Community Church years and years ago. And so we would always have a very important contact point with him. It wouldn't just end. Uh, things just don't work that way, I believe. And I think there's a lot of biblical precedent um, to them working um, in the way uh, that they would. So just keep that picture in your mind. If Pastor Craig um, packed up, starting a new church, found a new La Rosa's as well, and um, we were left here. And in some way, that would be comparable to Paul and the church at Philippi. Uh, one word I want you to think about in your mind is the word history. That is, Paul and this church had a lot of important history. Paul founded the Philippian church. Uh, it was very special to him. In fact, it was the first church that he established in Europe. Uh, and I believe Philippi would be in modern day uh, Greece. Some things about this church, particularly it was a faithful, mature, and growing church. And I would submit that in some ways, uh, the Philippian church was an extraordinary uh, testimony to a faithfulness before God. Um, you think about some of Paul's other letters, uh, maybe to the Galatian church or Corinth. Uh, the church in Galatia was teetering on a false gospel, um, falling into a reality of faith in Christ along with in this case, circumcision was making someone right with God, and that is completely contrary to what the Bible teaches. Faith in Christ and His work alone is what saves. That church, in some sense, was a mess. Corinth had all sorts of problems, and they were not in that camp, but uh, they were in the camp of immorality all over the place in that church, uh, perhaps in a similar way in which Pastor Craig um, Todd, I believe, last week, uh, tolerating that woman, Jezebel. But the Philippian church, faithful, growing, mature, and Paul, you can see it all throughout the book, had the heart of a shepherd um, toward this congregation, someone who 
uh, looked on, kept in touch, prayed for them, even received support from them, um, and cared for their best spiritual benefits. Some of the realities you may know of from Scripture regarding this church, um, the conversion of the Philippian jailer is a big story in the book of Acts, as well as um, the conversion of Lydia. Uh, I think most of, most of those are in Acts 16. And so Paul uh, writes this letter from prison in Rome, and this would be near the very end of his life, probably four or five years before he would end up um, dying. And this, when he writes it, would have been 10 to 12 years after founding the church. And so there had been... There had been a lot of years, really, where this church could have fallen off the rails, but had not. Um, and that should not have been taken and shouldn't be taken lightly. And so, huge history. And so he writes this letter from jail after receiving um, financial and food support through the messenger Epaphroditus. He writes to them to encourage them. And some of the things up to, until chapter 2 that he's written about, just to give you a little uh, background here, he wrote of his just general encouragement in their growth uh, in Christ-likeness. That's one that was his huge prayer and thankfulness all throughout chapter 1. He writes, and this is a lesson that we can really take a lot from, he writes of the spread of the gospel and his gratefulness for that to God through him being imprisoned. That's the big takeaway when he writes about the fact that he's uh, been in jail and what should they take away? He says, actually, this is served for the spread of the news of Christ. And that was his big encouragement. Be like this. I just imagine thinking about what if you know, I was put in jail uh, for preaching a true gospel. Would I have that sort of encouragement, right? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know, right? And so really key in on that. And also reminds them of the example of Christ's Humility in the very famous words of not looking to our own interests, but looking to the interests of others. Um, in that section of Christ humbling himself to death, even death on a cross. And so that's where we find ourselves uh, coming into chapter 19. And what I wanted to uh, preach about today is the blueprints of gospel partnership. That's the kind of big idea. Gospel, partnership in the gospel. Um, and I would submit that Paul and the church at Philippi are a great example and a perfect model, in a sense, of a partnership in the gospel. And I don't take that phrase out of thin air, but that is the phrase that Paul uses in chapter 1 uh, in verse uh, five, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so what would a gospel partnership be? I would say this. It's a mutual dedication to the spread of Christ's kingdom on earth. A mutual dedica dedication to the spread of Christ's kingdom on the earth. It's a dedication to the name of Jesus being praised and exalted. It's a dedication to the Great Commission, to disciples being made, um, making disciples and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. Uh, that would be a gospel partnership. And I believe that Paul uses that term in describing his relationship with this church 
not because the Philippian church was on some super secret spiritual plane, but rather because they had been so dedicated from an early day to support him and had been a faithful, growing, and maturing church that he coined it in some way with this idea that, you know what, like, you are a church just like any other church I've planted, but also you've excelled in certain things, so it's like we are partners in this work. Uh, I believe that's what he's getting at. Um, Gospel partnership. Um, And so Philippians 2, 19 through 30, but I'm going to focus on 19 and 20 today, I believe serve as really just an incredible window into some of the nuts and bolts of what made um, this relationship so special. What can we take away uh, from this church? In other words, how can we be more like this church in Philippi? That's a question I would want us to think about this morning. How can we be more like this church? So Philippians 2, 19 through 20 and 19 through 30 in general serve as a window into the inner workings of this relationship. It's a window in some way into church history, early church history, and reveals some key principles and priorities for us to learn from. And this book, Philippians, if you've been a part of a church for some time, you've heard a lot of verses, I would imagine, at the very least, from Philippians. Philippians 4.13, perhaps the most famous verse or one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Um, That's one uh, perhaps often misquoted as well. Uh, Christ humbling himself to death. Uh, Christ in chapter 1, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Right? And so... If we speed through the book, we can also miss, we can miss this basically treasure chest is what I'm getting at here of 19 through 30. And there's so much here. So the church at Philippi was a model of gospel partnership for 25, no, five reasons this morning. Um, What was this blueprint of gospel partnership? Well, one thing, point one, um, that's characterized Paul in this church they had a knowledge of their true north, a knowledge of the true north. In other words, at the end of the day, what are we in this for? How can we measure one another to know um, whether what we're aiming for is actually happening? And I would say that this knowledge or this true aim, what should be happening, is also revealed in this book. Uh, And that is actually flipped back in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Um, And I'm going to read that for you. So this is what it was all about. This is why Paul was thankful for this church. This is what he was praying for uh, when he wrote. He said this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And so I'll speak on some of those things briefly. Uh, What is this real goal uh, that was within the heart of Paul in this church? Well, It was that this church would love, their love would abound more and more, that they would grow in their knowledge and discernment 
of Christ. Verse 10, they could approve what was excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. In other words, a growth in Christ-likeness. Ultimately, that's what it was all about. Um, What was Paul joyful for when he thought back about this church, when he heard news about this church? What would he have been grieved by if it wasn't true? Look no further than these verses 9 through 11 in chapter 1. They're growing in knowledge of discernments. They're approving what is actually good. They're living lives that are pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. For what purpose? Well, to the glory and praise of God. And one thing I want you to remember about these realities is that all of them work uh, together. And so, well, they're growing in love, but what kind of love? Well, it's love with knowledge and discernment, not mere sentimentality. Knowledge and discernment. Um, They're approving what is excellent. So they're maturing and knowing what is actually true. Uh, This is not a church that stayed in baby spirituality their entire um, life. That is probably a most grievous thing, I would think, to uh, a missionary shepherd, we'll say, right? So think about Pastor Craig again. If he were to um, go off and five, ten years down the line, our church is no more like Christ um, than when he left, I'm sure that would be truly grieving. And yet, the flip side, if we are a more mature church later on than we were, what a joy that would be, right? So they both had the same knowledge of this is what we are to be growing in. Uh, this is what it is all about. A knowledge of the true north. The Philippian church excelled here, where I would argue like Galatian church or Corinth um, was less mature. And may we learn from that. Um, And on a side note, it is not wrong, by the way, um, for us to take a step back and do sort of a spiritual diagnosis of a church and to say, well, this church is probably more mature than this church over here. Uh, It's not arrogant, but rather it's very, very biblical. Um, It's not an arrogant thing uh, to have a metric because God gives us metrics. Um, It's a spiritual inward thing, but it manifests in the way that we think, in the way that we speak, the way that we act, um, the loving of one another, all those types of things. Um, knowledge of the true north. In line with that blueprint of gospel partnership, uh, why was this so special? Well, this church and Paul had a firm foundation of truth. And is that the exact same as my first point? Maybe I think it's a little different in that they also had a firm foundation of growing in discernment uh, based on what is false. And you can see that in Paul's warning in verse, or chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, he says to them, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Uh, In other words, that was the Judaizer sect um, of Judaism saying, hey, we 
you have to be circumcised in order to know Christ. Um, Paul, like them, had a firm foundation to know that it is not wrong, but rather right and true and good to call out what is false and what is an attack on the gospel, an attack that is on the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, This church, more than some, uh, I would say held firm, had a spine, perhaps, where some others did not. Um, And Paul, if you read any of his letters, uh, you know that he was a man that was gentle, but also full of spine. That is, he addressed problems that needed to be according to the word of God and called for true action. Um, So that's number two, a firm foundation of truth, not just the things of first importance, that is the gospel, which is the most important thing, but also application of living the Christian life. They had a more firm foundation of truth in general than some other churches. And for that reason, uh, I believe they guarded themselves in a better way uh, than many others and were more sound, uh, a model of excellence. Number three, uh, what else were they a model of in gospel partnership? Well, uh, gospel partnership must have, number three, trusted men ready to serve and teach. That's a necessary ingredient to a healthy church trusted men ready to serve and teach. I wanted to point out in verse 19 of chapter 2 that Paul says this in hopes of sending Timothy. He says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. And so probably a couple of things are true in that small but oh so important phrase, hope in the Lord Jesus. One, Paul's acknowledging that ultimately his plans are not founded on his strength or his ability to carry them out, but rather they are founded in the sovereign will of God. I hope in the Lord Jesus that by his timing and his strength, Timothy uh, will be able to come to you soon. Uh, I also think there's another idea here that in the Lord Jesus speaks to the most severe level of importance uh, that Paul had in sending Timothy. He didn't say, if time allows, I'll probably get Timothy over to you. That'd be a pretty good thing. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. And as a reminder, Paul was in a situation of some desperation being in a Roman prison, being previously sick, uh, just receiving supplies from the church. Uh, It's not like he is being fed grapes and fanned with palm branches or something, although I'm sure that'd be nice, right? Um, That wasn't happening. Uh, He hoped in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. And why is that? Well, Well, what was so special? What was so special about Timothy. Why not just send anyone? Well, Timothy, as we know from the rest of the New Testament, as well as probably this book, he was someone that had a handle on the Word of God and was trustworthy um, in that arena. He was an elder himself. 
And as we see in verse 20, he was genuinely concerned for their welfare. So Timothy described in verse 20, the first part of verse 20, Paul says, I have no one like him. And again, I don't think Timothy was on this super spiritual, untouchable spiritual plane. Um, that he was some super uh, Christian. But rather, I think Paul is acknowledging a very practical reality with Timothy that he had excelled in character, in Christ's likeness, in maturity for his age. And so for that reason, in his handle of the Word of God, in his care, his true care uh, for the saints, that is, uh, the holy ones of God, those who have been, been called from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. No one is as Timothy is to me. I have no one like him. Therefore, before anyone, before I bring out anyone out of the bullpen, I'm sending Timothy um, to you. And I wanted to key in on this phrase in verse 20. He is, what was so important about Timothy? He was genuinely concerned for your welfare. I think that's really what Paul says. This is the real reason why I'm sending him. He's a trusted man. Why is that? He's genuinely concerned. Well, I believe there are two reasons or two characteristics of genuine concern that would have characterized Timothy and characterizes servants of the Lord. One would be just practical everyday care. Uh, for the saints. That is being there for someone. Um, Mourning with those who mourn, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Um, Tangible acts of service. Uh, Timothy and Paul were no strangers uh, to putting their hands to work uh, for the benefit of the church. That's number one, and I think that that comes clear throughout the rest of the New Testament. But number two, with genuinely concerned would be the reality that Timothy, through his understanding of the Word of God, clearly revealed, knew what this people actually needed. And what they actually needed was the Word of God clearly taught in all of its form, which included realities like chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Timothy, as a character and as a real historical man in the New Testament, is described in his flesh, or perhaps even just in his natural bent, as someone who's timid. Uh, And Paul, in in 2 Timothy, actually charges him, reminds him that you have not been given a spirit of timidity, but rather one of power and love and self-discipline, that is through the Holy Spirit. And though Timothy, in his natural bent, was probably quiet, reserved, uh, maybe didn't take up a lot of space in a room. Um, I think it is very, it's a very obvious conclusion that Timothy, as someone trusted by Paul, would have been willing to say the necessary things in the right moment. The necessary things in the right moment. And I would argue that often when it comes to Uh, In this case, a trusted man would be comparable um, to an elder of a church uh, 
I mean, Timothy was, but it would be comparable to an elder today saying the right thing in the right moment, given the sin that is occurring in that day and age, is oh so important. And that is the context, um, I, I feel, that reveals uh, the trustworthiness often of a servant of God. Um, Paul did not live his life and make say what he needed to say based on what was convenient, what was going to save his skin. Um, nor did Timothy. Trusted men ready to serve and teach. The Philippian church needed that sort of uh, guardianship, uh, we'll say, right? Like every church needs to be hit with the truth of God, essentially. Um, If sin is not encountered, uh, if sin is not proclaimed to be the evil that it is, if repentance... uh, is not preached about, if the remedy of Christ and his forgiveness is not given as the solution, then a church will go south very quickly. Um, And that is what is so important about this ingredient of, uh, I would say, a mature church and, and also a church that would be described as a partner in the gospel. Um, in a way, for example, we are a partner in the gospel with Gerald. Uh, with 20 schemes, right? We care for him. We pray for him. Our part, part of our part of the bargain with an organization like that or Heart Cry or whatever is just staying faithful. That's part of our, a big part of our end of that deal is staying faithful to what the scriptures teach. Um, it is also praying, providing financial support, which the Philippian church did for Paul. Uh, That's one reason he praises them for their excellence. But a big part of our end of the deal, even Gerald, for example, his end of the deal is in the day-to-day, just standing firm in what the truth of God says and walking with him carefully. I think sometimes in terms of, you know, in the world of Christianity and missionary giving and overseas missions, sometimes I think we overcomplicate it. Um, We don't need missionaries all the time writing wonderfully flowery letters. I mean, that's great. But ultimately, give me someone who is faithful and stands in the Word of God 10 out of 10 times. And if their letter isn't formatted that great, but it's true, I'll take that every, every day of the week. Eight out of seven days. Eight out of seven days. Um, okay, number, so knowledge of the true north. Uh, Paul and the Philippian church. What made this a partnership in the news of Christ, something extraordinary, something that we can take from. Well, they had a knowledge of what was the goal in their lives and the goal of what they were seeing people come to. That is ultimately greater Christ's likeness. They had a firm foundation of the truth. That is, they were growing in their knowledge of of God and the knowledge of his law so that, to quote Philippians, every wind and wave of doctrine did not blow them off course. They had uh, trusted men ready to serve and teach. What else was true? Number four, growth, and this is somewhat maybe like number one, but growth in obedience, Uh, intangible obedience to Christ, growth in Christian character. And I hit on this earlier, but this is found at the very tail end of verse 19. 
Why did Paul send Timothy? Well, he wanted him to care for them, genuine care for you. But also, the other side of why he sent Timothy was, well, for Paul's benefit. Why did he send you? End of 19, so that I may be cheered by news of you. And upon a first reading, you might think, well, okay, a little selfish there, Paul. But no, that's, that's how the Lord has designed it. Right? Um, so let's go back to this example. Craig is in Whereversville, USA. He's chomping on his La Rosa's pizza. He's been pastoring another church for 10 years, uh, and he's checking in as he does periodically uh, and as he keeps these close relationships. He wants to be cheered, he wants to be overjoyed seeing the gospel bear fruit in people's lives. That was what, what was the great joy that Paul had all throughout his writings throughout the New Testament was when he was commending a church, he was commending them for their growth in acts of Christian service, for their growth uh, in knowledge of Christ, for their growth in, quote unquote, doing the one another's, that is caring for one another, praying for one another, living lives that honored Christ in all arenas in life, all of Christ for all of life, whether that be in the church, in the workplace, as part of the government, as a mother, as a father, as a child in school, as a teacher, whatever. This would be the news in this example of what would be a joyous thing for a pastor a missionary, whoever, to hear. And would that be true? Just a self-reflection question for you. Would that be true of Grace Community Church? Last, well, what, what sets apart or what, um, what's an ingredient of a partnership in the good news of Christ? Well, probably hit on it a bit before, but that would be works of hospitality. And that goes back to being genuinely concerned for their welfare. That's Timothy. But it also goes to the general context of this book. And that is the Philippian uh, church had sent Paul uh, supplies, food and supplies, while he was in prison. And I'm sure it would have been easy if you were them, if you hear news of him, just to be like, man, thoughts and prayers, right? Thoughts and prayers, and that's, prayer is of utmost importance. But uh, we know that faith without works is dead, and so that was a tangible, wonderful work coming in when it counted most for Paul. Um, so this is a church and an apostle, in Paul's case, that put feet uh, to their faith. Uh, you could see tangible evidence of, wow, they are living in a way that is consistent with the character of Christ. Consistent with the character of Christ. So the questions I wanted to just leave us with is, how can we be, in a sense, more like this church in Philippi. 
uh, right? A church that really was encouraged by Paul to continue in the work that God had been doing in them rather than being rebuked. Um, we don't want to have unnecessary problems due to sin, right? We want to we do something extraordinary. I do. I want the gospel to bear fruit in my own life as well as the lives of you all and prayerfully in the lives uh, of those in this neighborhood. And so, one, how are we already like them? Because what God has been doing should be commended and that there's been a lot of um, growth and sanctification in our church, I think, the last couple of years. Uh, there have been, there's a lot of people right now that can, even just one little area, they can articulate uh, the faith in extraordinary ways, whereas two years ago, you, you couldn't get them to talk. That's incredible stuff. Um, and it's not just all talk either. It's, it's being put into action. Praise the Lord. So we're already like them in some ways. Where are we already like this church? And how can we become more like um, the Philippian church? And that is ultimately guarded by the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm assuming, of course, uh, Philippians 12 and 13, all throughout my sermon today, that is this. Therefore, my beloved, that is that church, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in your absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm assuming the fact that God is the one at work. And so I'm not putting the Philippian church in and of itself on a pedestal, but rather the work of God in them as willing servants uh, to be commended and learned from. I think it's important to realize that whether we always realize we're in one or not, we, living in actual history, right, actual space-time reality, we always are in an era of time. And we're always in a certain period of time, like we're in April of 2022, but our church is also in an era. And maybe we can't define it right now. It's hard to know what you're in when you're actually in it. But the question is, you know, when we look back at, you know, 2022 to like 2025 or whatever, what do we want to say is true about what the Lord did in our congregation? That's, that's what I want to leave you all with this morning. Because it's easy to just go through the motions. Um, but thinking about this, I think, is very important. What might the Lord do uh, as we take these lessons to heart?